the interesting thing about Lewis is his fiction, each thing that he writes is really very different or set of things is really very different than other things. Till We Have Faces is one of the last books he wrote. He actually, his wife, Joy Davidman, helped him with parts of it. And he would talk it through with her, which is part of why it's different than other books he wrote. But it's really a book about, well, the, it's a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth in a fantasy world that doesn't, you know, is not part of our world. So it's, it's not strictly a Greek place, but it is a retelling of that myth. And if you know the story of Cupid and Psyche, of course, Cupid, you know, Psyche is this beautiful woman. Cupid is the son of Venus who falls in love with this beautiful woman. Venus gets very jealous because, hello, she's the god of beauty. And Lewis uses this to story to explore what does it mean that God is love? What does it mean to love anyone? What is love in the first place? And it's a really fabulous story. Every time I have reread it, because I teach it, it's the last book we do every time I teach an overview of C.S. Lewis, because I think it's his richest story in many ways, his deepest story. Um, and it's also one of his more disturbing stories. Welcome to Everything is Spiritual, a podcast from Soul Care Urban Retreat Center. We're talking with local folks, faith leaders, creatives, thinkers, and community advocates, getting personal about their faith and spirituality and how it shows up in their daily life and work. I'm Kelly Skinner, your host, and I'm sharing these heart-centered conversations to invite you to become more aware that everything is spiritual and to deeply connect with what is most true and alive in your own everyday life. I'm talking today with Dr. Melody Green, the Dean of Urbana Theological Seminary. She's also an assistant professor of Christianity and culture there. And if you know me at all, you would know that I'm a total bookworm and have been since I was young. And it was so awesome to totally nerd out with her over talking about fantasy and fiction. And what was even better was that we got to talk about why fantasy and science fiction are the perfect genres to explore spiritual questions. Because Dr. Green is maybe not your typical seminary professor. Her teaching and research center around where faith and literature intersect. And she has a very special interest on J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis, who you might know as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, especially The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and George MacDonald, as well as some other children's literature. She's really well known by scholars here in the U.S. and in many different countries as one of the people who helped create and sponsor the annual Tolkien Conference. And in fact, they had their 2021 virtual conference earlier this spring, and she was a part of it. So I'm excited to share our conversation around how we can each be inspired by spiritual themes that show up in pop culture, in books, in films, and TV shows, and how this might provide new and imaginative ways to hear the story anew and connect to the divine and practice spirituality in our daily lives. 
I know our listeners can't see the backgrounds, but I love seeing all your books in the bookcases, and you're definitely a a bibliophile. <laughs> <laughs> I do love books. Yes, definitely. Yes, definitely. it warms my heart because I love books too. <laughs> oh, great, great. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, so I always have a big pile of books on my nightstand. Are you one of those people too? Yes. In fact, I have two piles of books right now that I'm trying to consolidate. There's one on my nightstand that is my to read now pile. And then there's one by a chair in my living room that is to read immediately. And I'm like, I really need to put the two piles together into one because they're, they're really the same thing, but Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I make lists of what I want to read mm-hmm. and like to be read lists. And then I discover new books. And then I'm like, sorry, you need to go to the back of the line. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I started reading when I was really young. And I loved fantasy, just like I think a lot of kids that are in middle school. And I read The Hobbit and The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and actually all of the Chronicles of Narnia books. I I think I probably read four or five times by the time I got through high school. And so what sparked your interest in books, especially the fantasy books like the ones you talk, you teach about? That's an excellent question. It's an interesting story because I grew up in a home where my parents loved to read. So I, we had lots of books around us, but they were all nonfiction. My parents loved books about the United States. They had tons of them. Had books about um, spiritual issues and spiritual things, but not much fiction at all in the house. Uh, so I did have older brothers who had books, and so I would read some of theirs. But what really sparked my interest in fantasy were two specific events. One was, and it's it's kind of an odd story, but the church I grew up in had something called Vacation Bible School that would last for two weeks every summer, and when it would they would do it, it was a mess. The whole church was just completely taken over. So. Because it was two weeks, the Sunday morning in the middle, they would, instead of having Sunday school, they would put all the children in the sanctuary and have us watch a movie. And when I was six years old, a cartoon version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe had just come out, and that was the movie we watched. And I fell in love. It was amazing. And if you, you can find this on YouTube and watch it, and I, I've shown clips of it to my classes it is not well done at all, but, but it was <laughs> it's good from enough. the era. Yes. It's from the era. Yes. And it was good <laughs> enough to get a six year old really fascinated. So then the other thing, it happened around that same time. I don't know exactly when, but again, I mentioned I had older brothers, and there was this book that they had all read that was going to be a cartoon on TV. Now, this is telling my age a little bit, isn't it? (laughs) So my brothers were excited about it. And I remember my parents even got chairs and they lined them up in front of the TV. And I had no idea what The Hobbit was. But it was The Hobbit cartoon, first time it was shown (laughs) on TV. I, again, I was just fascinated. It was just this amazing story that was like nothing else I had ever experienced before. So While I love books, it was actually two movies that pulled me into loving fantasy stories. So Hmm. it grew out of that. 
That's awesome. I think we were assigned, I think I'm a little bit older than you, but I think we were assigned like a like a homework mm-hmm. book report assignment on the Lion and the Witch, the Wardrobe cartoon. So, <laughs> so you remember it. <laughs> uh, I do remember it. <laughs> that's, um, that's funny. People should definitely look that up on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll find it and put it in the show notes because oh, you, you have to experience that, especially if you've read it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> And so you teach, one of the things that you teach is Christianity and Children's Lit class at Urbana Theological Seminary. And so I know that explores the way that stories that children encounter shape who they are and what they believe. How do you think your own spirituality has evolved from the faith of your childhood over the years? And how was that influenced by the kinds of books that you read? That's another fascinating question. It might be easier to tackle the second question before the first. I would say, again, because I met the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first in a church environment, it was really easy for me to catch on that Aslan was supposed to be Jesus. And because of that, I think there were times as I was growing up that it was easier to see and be excited about Aslan than about Jesus himself. In fact, it's really fascinating. C.S. Lewis a lot of children wrote letters to him and he would write letters back. And there's a collection of them called C.S. Lewis's Letters to Children. Marjorie Mead is the person who edited it. And one of the letters is a woman who's writing about her son who's very concerned because he loved Aslan more than Jesus. And he felt that must be wrong. And C.S. Lewis's response was, well, everything that you love in Aslan, it's because he, that's, those are those things in Jesus too. And so when you're loving Aslan, you're not doing anything different than loving Jesus. And then he even ends it with, how about having him pray, your son pray this prayer about, basically, it's like, if there's anything, I can't remember the exact wording now, but it's something about if there's anything in this that's wrong, help me to love you more than this. But, and if Mr. Lewis has misled any children by this, please forgive him and help him not to do it again. And I just thought that was a great, that's just a great example of this house story. It gives children a context for things. One of the things we were talking about in my class last week, actually I think helps kind of understand or helps work with this, is that one of the questions that came up, we were talking about fairy tales, and actually one of the Grimm brothers, um, if you read the letters that the two Grimm brothers who were collecting fairy tales wrote to each other, they talked a lot about issues of spirituality in the fairy tales themselves. And one of the Grimm brothers talked about how he saw Christian themes throughout them. Now, you know, these are the stories like Snow White, Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood. And so one of the questions that came up in class was, well, do children get it when they read this? They're not going to look at this and go, oh, well, clearly this represents this or this is a way of thinking about this. But it's something that actually lays the groundwork for thinking about other things. And when you're reading stories that show or that reflect that structure, that construct, it, it puts certain things in the way you expect the world to be, the way you think about the world. So on the one hand, I knew Aslan was Jesus, and there's all these cool things about Aslan, and it's like you could see them in Jesus after seeing them in Aslan, if that makes any sense. But also, I think my spirituality was definitely developed by those stories, including things like in The Hobbit, you've got loyalty and hope and all kinds of values that are spiritual values that show up, that are showing, you know, modeling for children and instilling them in them that are definitely 
spiritual values and spiritual things. I feel like I've gotten off topic from the question. (laughs) So how do you think that influenced you personally? Me personally? Oh, definitely. So this is kind of a funny thing. The stories that I've always loved have always been stories that point to something bigger than themselves. Academic organization actually called the Mythopaic Society that studies not just fantasy, but fantasy that points to something outside of itself. So it looks at Tolkien and Lewis and Charles Williams is one of the authors, people like George MacDonald, who was a Victorian author who influenced both Tolkien and Lewis. And so I think part of it is that my own spirituality has been influenced by these stories. Give me a second here, because I'm, I'm going a very different direction than I first meant to. <laughs> <laughs> In ways like, okay, like in George MacDonald's stories, he's got quite a few stories where there's a grandmother figure who really represents a God figure. And this grandmother is something supernatural and very different. But they have conversations about things like, well, how do you know she's there? Like, for instance, there's one little boy in one of the stories. He's taken to go see her. And a little girl can see her just fine. And the little boy next to her can't see the grandmother. And the little girl's talking to the grandmother and the little boy can't see it. And I think stories like that helped me understand things about spiritual life that you might be talking about the same things and seeing something very different. Another way that I would say that these stories have helped shape my own spirituality has to do with something C.S. Lewis writes about in an essay. Oh boy, what is it called? I believe it's called Sometimes Fairy Stories Say What You Really Want to Say or The Best Things to Be Said or something like that. I'd have to go look up the title. But he actually talks in that essay about how when he was a child, he would go to church and they'd listen to the service and they'd do whatever you're supposed to do. And it meant nothing to him. If anything, it was almost like an inoculation against religion because it was so drab and he couldn't make sense of it. And he believed as an adult that the stories that you tell can help children. He called it sneak past the watchful dragons, the things that get you, that push you away from thinking about issues of faith. Stories that reflect the same ideas, have the same concepts in them, can help you children think differently. So you hear the story in church over and over and over again. Here's the stories you should know. And they get really boring because you've been told them your whole life. And Abraham is not that fascinating after you've heard it 32 times. And when you're finally old enough to understand parts of it that you didn't understand before, you're too bored to understand why the story, or to bother figuring out why the story even exists. So Lewis's idea is that these stories help you think about these things. I'm not saying they should replace those kinds of things, but they are definitely a part of it and they work alongside of it. Another thing I would say if I remember the question correctly, is, so there's one thing that, um, this story about Tolkien and Lewis, where, whoops. So Tolkien, you know, was a devout Catholic, and C.S. Lewis was, for a good part of his life, an atheist. And there's a point when he, and so he was raised in the church, but as a teenager, was just like, this stuff's ridiculous, and walks away. But he loved fantasy stories, specifically even more than fantasy, he loved mythology, so he, and I know I'm like, you asked me about me, but I'm like, I really think it's like no, these, that's stories, okay. these yeah. stories of these people help me see my own, you know, beliefs easier and my own experiences a little easier. But C.S. Lewis and Tolkien became good friends because they were both very interested. They were working, they were teaching at Oxford. They met at a faculty meeting and they quickly found out they were both very interested in Norse mythology. 
So Tolkien even had this reading group that was reading the Norse myths in their original language, the way they were originally written down. And he invites Lewis to join it. And so they become very good friends. And there's one night they're sitting and they're talking and they end up going on a walk on grounds at Maudlin College where C.S. Lewis was teaching. And this is like two o'clock in the morning. And they go on this walk called Addison's Walk. And they're walking and talking. And as as they talk, they're kind of arguing about, and there's a third friend with them named Hugo Dyson, but they're arguing about story. And maybe even arguing is not the right word. Lewis makes a point at one point. He's like, you know, you believe in this Jesus guy, but, you know, he's just another dying God myth. Every mythological system that exists has a dying God myth. Jesus is just another one. And Tolkien came back and said, well, yes, you're right. Every mythological system that exists has a dying God myth. But that doesn't prove the story of Jesus wrong. It proves it right. And Tolkien argued that every single one of these stories is the way it is because that is the truth. The story of Jesus is the truth that all these other stories are pointing us to and that they're all pointers to the exact same thing. And that was actually a huge part of C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity that he was able to say, okay, I can love the story of Balder, the dying God in Norse mythology and love Jesus too, because he's pointing me to Jesus instead of just saying, well, they're all the same kind of story, except the Christian story is more boring than the other ones, which was part of his argument, too. Yeah, and, and they're not mutually exclusive is what I hear you saying. That you, I think that's a really interesting point, that by looking at this North, Norse mythology story, it's it's not bad. It's not, it's not heretical to right. even be it, love it, because mm-hmm. through that frame, it can also point you to the Jesus story. Exactly. Exactly. And I think for me, that was a big part of growing up because I loved, or my life is I love those kinds of stories too. It's okay. I don't have to be afraid of any story that is pointing in the same direction. So yeah, I hope that helps. (laughs) Yeah, no, I really, really like that. And it was interesting. Um, so this morning I was having a conversation with some friends about deconstruction and reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And that story that you told about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, it sounded like, well, maybe he didn't deconstruct. Maybe he was reconstructing. But being able to assemble a certain set of beliefs and then being able to pivot on that set of beliefs to be able to look at it through a new lens, I think is a really important skill for a lot of people as they navigate their own spirituality. And to be able to find inspiration and spiritual inspiration in everyday things from a story to a children's book to academic things in other languages, I think that's just fascinating. Yeah. So where are you now? If you could sum up your own spirituality right now in one or two sentences, what would that be? And You may be able to guess this from what I've just said, but I really would say that my spirituality is summed up in the fact or the belief that Jesus is really the center of everything and that everything ultimately points us back to him. I'll say it this way. You don't have to be afraid of other things. You don't have. That's a big one that I think a lot of people who do believe in Jesus are afraid of things outside of what they believe because they're afraid somehow it will pull them away. And I'm like, no, they can be things that help you understand better and pull you closer. Mm-hmm. No, that really appreciate that sentiment. So how does does your spiritual understanding show up and make a difference for you in your life and work? Oh, boy. 
Well, one thing is you don't, like I said, you don't have to be afraid of other people, other ways of thinking, other ways of doing things. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things is like, you know, so you meet someone who believes something different than you. Find out what it is they believe. Find the places where, hey, these are places we can talk that are similar. It helps to see what the differences are, too. Um, so that's one part of it. But a bigger, I would say even a bigger picture is if you believe that Jesus is the center of everything, then you better be paying attention to what. So things like when he calls to love our neighbors, the the Beatitudes, blessed are the people who do these things, pay attention. I'm not saying I'm that great always at loving my neighbors, but it's something <laughs> definitely to work on because that is what he calls his people to. So yeah, that in my life, in my teaching, I think it's easier to... Like when I, okay, so when I'm dealing with students, I love students, by the way, they're wonderful people. I tend to get the most awesome students. And so if any of you guys are listening, yeah, that means you. So I think part of, if you can see the world through the lens that Jesus saw the world through and sees the world through, that whole, every person has value. You should be loving your neighbors. Jesus told us to love our neighbors and he told us to love our enemies both because they, they all have value in his eyes. I think that helps with teaching, seeing how students are doing things and being able to relax sometimes on some things that maybe sometimes some teachers will get upset about. Try to understand where the student is coming from. I just had a conversation with someone just yesterday about a teacher at another school. We don't do this at Urbana Seminary, but a teacher at another school who said students are not allowed to come into class late. They lock the door right when class starts. I'm like, You've got to understand if a student is coming to class, they want to be there at college, in college. If they're late, something has happened. See who they are, love who they are, understand where they're coming from, and then work from there instead of saying the student has to fit exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you, do you have students that come to your classes that maybe aren't Christian or maybe have moved away from the Christian faith? And how do they see some of these or relate to some of these lenses? Well, that's a really interesting question because most people look at a seminary and say, oh, everybody who goes to seminary must be Christian. And the reality is that that's not always the case. Um, even last semester, I had two students, one who did not know what she believed, but wanted to take a Tolkien class and thought a seminary's approach to Tolkien would be really cool. And, and she had a lot of fun. And one student who had grown up in the church had been very active, had something very painful happen that a pastor was actually involved in and doesn't know what she believes. And so it was wonderful having them in class because sometimes they would ask questions that the other students needed to hear. And that's people who, sometimes they're the ones who are asking the questions that people who think they know all the answers really need to hear and work through themselves. And I would say that they are, it's fun having people like that in the class because not only do they challenge other people to think, but they're thinking things through. It's, and that's one of the great things about Urbana seminary classes is because we're interdenominational, we don't say you have to believe this strict set of theological standards and that's it. Granted, we are Christians, so our, our students do come, you know, we do, we do have a specific theology, a very basic one that branches into so many different ways that, you know, different denominations have so many different and things throughout church history, just so many different ways of seeing things. And even just exploring those helps 
students think through what do they believe, why do they believe it. So I think that's part of the fun of my classes is they often, or they have, especially speaking last semester, those students gave a safe space for some students to ask some of those questions. Why do you guys believe this? Oh, wow, Tolkien believes this, and here's how it's present in his work. But why did he believe it? And how does that affect who we are today or who I am? Yeah. And it. I bet it's interesting looking at these two authors or these th- authors that you explore who are coming from more of a English, you know, English background and also historically not in in our era and their views of Christianity and Christian faith and spirituality and how it might either resonate or come up against some of our American Christian 21st century views. Definitely, definitely. Oh, one of my favorite stories, I have many favorite stories about C.S. Lewis, but one of the ones that makes me laugh is, you know, Billy Graham went to England several times. And the story goes that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien had seen some Billy Graham stuff and were sitting there talking about how shocking it was that Billy Graham's wife wore makeup as they're sitting there smoking and drinking. So, so many of these standards that we have that are culturally embedded have very little to do with Christianity. I just think it's a great story that shows there's a lot of Christians in America today who still think that drinking is wrong and smoking is a sin. And the Bible actually doesn't say anything about smoking because it didn't even exist at the time when the Bible was written. And well, that whole drinking thing has such a heavy history in the, the temperance movement and so many other things going on that even seeing that that small of a difference helps us understand what really does matter and what doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. So I'm just really intrigued, not just about the kind of bringing out some of the themes within Tolkien and Lewis and and McDonald and some of the other children's literature, but it just really makes that. I love what you said about it takes some of those boring things that we might associate with church and being ceremonies and ritual sometimes even, and it makes it a little bit more tangible and and juicy even. And you wrote an article about Doctor Who, which I think is even more fascinating. So I'd love to hear a little bit of perspective about some of that, um, about Doctor Who or something else that you're passionate about right now. (laughs) So, okay, so I'll start with Doctor Who. I actually have two essays in two different book collections about Doctor Who. And how I first got interested in it is when I was working on my dissertation, my dissertation was actually about sacrificial death in children's and adolescent fantasy literature and looking at things like Aslan and so many stories a character dies to save other characters and why is this happening so often and what, what's really going on in those stories. And when I would talk to people and say, that's what I'm doing, I would get one of three responses. The first one is sacrificial death in children's literature. <laughs> yeah that's a fair response and the second one would be like oh you mean like Aslan and like yeah exactly and then the third one I kept getting was oh you mean like Doctor Who and I'd be like what so I finally while I was actually writing my dissertation 
I remember one day I had not seen any episodes of Doctor Who. I turn on my TV and I hear this, and I didn't even know what it was. And so I saw the very first episode of Christopher Eccleston, the reboot of Doctor Who. Um, I saw it being aired on PBS. I sat down. I'm like, oh, I see what everyone's talking about. And I watched that first episode and I'm like, that was dumb. And then I watched the second (laughs) episode. And I remember the exact moment when I got hooked. In the second episode, that was Christopher Eccleston. There's a character who says to to Doctor Who, stop wasting time, Time Lord. And I, I had no idea what a Time Lord was. I had no idea anything about Doctor Who. But that phrase even, I'm like, well, what would that mean to be the Lord of Time? Now, in Christianity, we're taught Jesus is the Lord of, the to- of Time. I'd never really thought about what that even meant. And so that in and of itself grabbed me enough to keep watching the series. And over and over and over again in Doctor Who, you get these characters who die to save other people. Just like Christianity tells us, Jesus died to save us. So that was one thing that pulled me in. But then especially in the the David Tennant era, I don't know how much Doctor Who you know, but he is still my favorite doctor. In the David Tennant era, over and over and over again, we get episodes that are exploring ideas about what does it mean to be human? What is the worth of a person? Those are theological questions. They're questions we should all be asking. But then there are also, see, we get that at one level, but then there are also times when you notice all of a sudden, hey, this character is actually named after a Bible character. Like there's one episode where a minor character's name is Solomon, and he's leading this group of people in New York City who are living in Hooverville. And he actually, there's two people fighting over a loaf of bread. And he stops them and he takes a loaf of bread, tears it in half and gives one each half. And his name is Solomon. Well, if you remember the Bible story about Solomon, there's the two women who are arguing. They both claim this baby is theirs. And he's like, okay, well, I'll cut the baby in half and you can each have half. So it's playing with that story and that image. And once the, the, the audience member who knows who Solomon was and sees the bread, it's, reminding us of that story but the solution that he comes up with okay granted the real mom said oh no that's my baby or that's that's her baby don't cut the baby in half let her have it which was how solomon knew the real mom but in this case it's like he's still tearing something in half but in this case it just solved the problem so it's it's fascinating that the episodes in back to her that's just one example there's another example all about a character named lazarus who he, I'm sorry, the, it's, he's Dr. Lazarus. The Lazarus Experiment is the name of the episode. He thinks he has figured out how to conquer death. And of course, the story of Lazarus is a story about someone coming back from the dead. So Dr. Who did a lot, especially in the David Tennant era, but there's, there's others that were just exploring these spiritual ideas and giving characters names that kind of are supposed to jog your thinking about, yeah, these are spiritual themes and get people to think a little bit more about some very important theological issues that we should all be thinking about. And it's interesting then like some of the other later episodes, like some of the Matt Smith ones actually turn that on its head and like challenge, well, why is there a God? Should God even exist? Does God exist? How can you know God exists? One of the doctors even talks about part of why he's traveling is to find out if there's a God in one episode. And it's like, oh, that's fascinating. So anyway, yeah, that's some of the Doctor no, Who that, stuff. Yeah, and I think I think those those really 
are important human questions, whether you're Definitely. a Christian or not. Right. They're just important human questions that we should be asking. And it's neat that people are getting that through more pop culture references um, than maybe in a house of worship, but they're still very important questions. So do you find yourself looking at other works through that same lens now? And like, do you, do you, oh, there's that reference and here's, here's this thing that I notice? Definitely. Yes. The, the example I'm thinking of right now actually is a strange one because I don't think it exactly proves my point. I think it proves the opposite. A few years ago, someone asked me if I, because I teach all kinds of things at the seminary. I've taught a Christianity and Harry Potter class. It was called, What's a Christian to Do with Harry Potter? I've taught C.S. Lewis, of course, and I did a whole sem- summer class once on the Chronicles of Narnia, just looking at that. And I've got an overview of Lewis. And I do a class called Imaginative Apologetics, where we're looking at how story helps us think about God and about theological questions. But someone asked me to do a Jane Austen class. And I was like, oh, you know, I thought about it for a minute and I said, I don't think I can do that. And his response was, oh, you don't like Jane Austen? I'm like, no, I I like Jane Austen stories quite a bit. They're very fun. But there's not that extra depth, that spiritual aspect to the stories. Oh, yes, there are characters who are pastors. But they're either the booby prize for the loser, as in Pride and Prejudice, or they are the prize for the winner. And in Jane Austen's stories, they're always very, it's a very materialistic world. Everything is about the here and the now. Ultimately, it's often about what kind of money comes with the guy, what kind of a lifestyle comes with the guy that, and who wins the guy, which they're fun stories. They're great, but they're not looking at those eternal questions or those, those serious, deeper questions that I think a lot of fantasy and other stories can do that. Um, murder mysteries actually can ask all those same questions. Agatha Christie's stories, I think, do a lot with those kinds of things. Hmm. That's so interesting. What do you think makes fantasy and science fiction kind of the right genre to be asking those kinds of questions? There's a lot of reasons. One of them is that we don't have the same emotional connections that we do with history. If like you get a historical fiction, there are certain things that we bring from our own experience, from our own understanding of the era that that historical fiction took place in that makes it harder to see some of the big questions. An example might be, I love, I love children's fiction. I, you know, my, my specialty. So my PhD is actually in something called English studies. And my specialization was literature for children and adolescents. Now I did to do English studies. You've got to have a lot of different things that you're bringing to your specialty so you do things like linguistics and what does literary theory and just various things. But one of the things I love in children's literature is children's fiction about World War II, especially about the Holocaust. In fact, I'm looking this direction because right next to me is a whole shelf of children's fiction about the Holocaust right now. I'm looking to my, yeah, to my right. Books like Jane Yolen's The Devil's Arithmetic. These books ask very important questions about the world we live in just like and what matters in the world just like fantasy stories do but there are very specific things that we bring to that story and someone who has family history that might involve something with that is going to be bringing something different 
than the person who doesn't. So a fantasy story has all of that taken away. And it's just, here's, you could tell a very similar story to many of these in a fantasy world that has re- taken us one step away from, here's we know about what happened to these real people. It's like, okay, let's take that and put it in an environment where, okay, in the words of the bookstore owner in the book, The Neverending Story, it's safer. It's safer mm-hmm. to think about these things in a book that is not going to hurt you or affect mm-hmm. in the same way the world mm-hmm. you live in or the way you think about other people, specific people groups. But that's going to let you say, okay, all of these things are questions that need to be asked and answered. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that fantasy relies on heavily relies on mythology and a lot of the images that we use in fantasy stories, dragons, magic swords, talking trees come out of myth in Exodus. So <laughs> there's a talking bush that talks to Moses. But that's, yeah, yeah. that's, that's, uh, yeah. But the imagery that we get in fantasy is already the imagery that people have been using to talk about the important questions. Uh huh. Yeah. Just again, as humans and mm-hmm. archetypes and, and yes. kind of these, yes. these things that we have embedded into our collective consciousness, we already know what they represent. Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of take it to a different level. So mm-hmm. hmm, I really like that. So is there any specific authors or works that are just inspiring you right now or that are emerging as as things that people new ways of looking at fantasy or new ways of looking at at some of these new authors okay let or me old authors i guess <laughs> let me think for a minute because i mean of course i love tolkien i love lewis and those are the ones i always come back to and george mcdonald is in there what's fascinating to me is how people keep coming back to the same things when we talk about the question is about new but I really think it's the old that keeps pulling us back in Mm -hmm. and the newest authors that are the most interesting are ones that are bringing us back to the old older things there's one author that people keep telling me I have to keep reading I read his first book and it is really interesting he's a children's author named Andrew Peterson and he's got his first book was called North or be eaten. So mm-hmm. go north or someone will eat you, basically, is the... And they, they have really fun names on the edge of the dark sea of darkness. I like, you're like, okay, <laughs> that's just the news. Um, it's a little dramatic. It is, they are. They're very fun. And they have goofy things, like they have these these evil cows that have long teeth that will go eat you. <laughs> but there's something in those that kind of pulls back into the same... Some of those same questions that they're he's presenting children with these things that's like yeah we should be asking these questions other authors besides of course tolkien and lewis and george mcdonald that people i think should read lloyd alexander now mm-hmm. he actually died oh probably 15 20 years ago but he's one that not a lot of people his, his stuff is still in print at least a lot of it is he's not always the first one people think of But he's exploring a lot of the same questions. And one of the things that's fascinating to me about him is when he died, he left all of his papers to Brigham Young University, which is actually a Mormon college. But he said, I am not a person of faith. I want these papers to be in a school, in an archive of a school that is a place of faith 
because I think that stuff is really important, I just could never get there. And he even said he was asking some of those questions as he was writing some of his books. So like the his best known series, the Pride Aang series, there's the Book of Three, the Black Cauldron, the last book, The High King, won the Newbery Award, which is the biggest award given to children's literature in the United States. So I think he's someone who's really worth reading, especially that series. Start with the Book of Three, of course. Disney had a movie in the 80s that was loosely based on the series. It's called The Black Cauldron, probably the worst Disney cartoon, um, feature-length cartoon. But mm-hmm. the ser- the books themselves are fabulous. Ursula Lee Gwynn is another one who mm-hmm. is well worth mm-hmm. reading for people who want to explore an author who is really asking the important questions. And you mentioned uh, Carl Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. Her book, A Wizard of Earthsea, explores very speci- a very specific part of that idea. The shadow side of you is what Jung called it. And that is exactly what happens in The Wizard of Earthsea is a boy who's going to school to become a wizard. This is before the Harry Potter books. Does something, he breaks a rule. And because he broke this rule, his shadow self actually comes out. It's this monster. He doesn't know that that's what it is. It's a monster he has to defeat. And he spends the whole book chasing that monster to defeat it. And when it gets to the point where he finally faces it, he's chasing it. He's running away from it, kind of both. When he finally faces it, he realizes it is a part of who he is. And he has to figure out how do I work with the darkness that's inside of me, which, of course, in Christian spirituality, that is, but in other spirituality, you know, forms of spirituality, it is recognized as well that we do have this darkness inside of us that we have to figure out what am I going to do with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my passions is, or not one of my passions, but one of my kind of guiding principles is about working towards shalom and working towards wholeness. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. you can't do that unless you integrate that shadow side of yourself. So that's that's a really beautiful concept. Is there anything by C.S. Lewis or Tolkien that, um, you know, for casual readers of those two authors that you would, maybe if you've only had experience with The Hobbit or the the other trilogy and then the Chronicles of Narnia, is there other books that you would recommend to go deeper? Wow. Okay, so Tolkien is, he's the one that, I mean, almost, excuse me, almost everything he wrote was about Middle Earth. And so he started writing about Middle Earth while he was a soldier in World War One in the trenches. At the end of his life, he's still revising The Silmarillion, which is about Middle Earth. So if you read The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, The Silmarillion is the next place to go. The Silmarillion is, has been described as if The Lord of the Rings was the New Testament, The Silmarillion would be the Old Testament. It ex- explores how did the world get to where it is, or explains how did the world get to where it is that they needed The Lord of the Rings to happen. But there's other stories of his that are shorter stories that I think are well worth reading that aren't as commonly known because they're not in that Middle Earth place. One of them is Leaf by Niggle. It's a story about a painter who loves painting. And he works so hard first on one leaf and then it grows into a tree. And just how this works and there's some really interesting spiritual conversations that happen in that book. It's been described as his most allegorical story where 
there are distinct symbols in it. There's a point talking about Nigel and scholars will talk about, well, what are those two voices? And some will say, well, like, it's God, the father and Jesus. And others like, well, no, it's grace and law. And so it's a mm-hmm. fascinating, fascinating story because of just what it says about artists and we as people who are creators. Tolkien believed very firmly that we create because we were created in the image of a creator, that God is a creator, therefore we create too. And this story just works with that whole concept. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean that we create in the image of a creator? Um, the other one by Tolkien would be Smith of Wooten Major. And it's a story that several people I know that the first time they read it, they were like, I didn't even get it. And they had to go back and reread it for some reason or another, or went back to reread it because they were bored or whatever. And they're like, Oh, it makes more sense the second time through the third time through. I think it also makes more sense. The older you are, it's a story about a guy. It really follows his life from childhood to adulthood, but it, he's a Smith in a town called Wooten Major, there's something very specific that happens to him when he's a child that is kind of strange, but it makes no sense until he's an adult. And as an adult, it really shapes everything that he does and loves. And there are characters in that that you get a very some very interesting images of a spiritual experience in that book. And I'm like, I'm trying to be really cautious and not give anything away. <laughs> <laughs> C.S. Lewis, I would say read, of course, the Narnia books. If you've read those, the interesting thing about Lewis is his fiction, each thing that he writes is really very different or set of things is really very different than other things. Till We Have Faces is one of the last books he wrote. He actually, his wife, Joy Davidman, helped him with parts of it. And he would talk it through with her, which is part of why it's different than other books he wrote. But it's really a book about... Well, the, it's a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth in a fantasy world that doesn't, you know, is not part of our world. So it's not a, it's not strictly a Greek place, but it is a retelling of that myth. And if you know the story of Cupid and Psyche, of course, Cupid, you know, Psyche is this beautiful woman. Cupid is the son of Venus who falls in love with this beautiful woman. Venus gets very jealous because, hello, she's the god of beauty. And Lewis uses this story to explore what does it mean that God is love? What does it mean to love anyone? What is love in the first place? And it's a really fabulous story. Every time I have reread it, because I teach it, it's the last book we do, or the, yes, the last book we do every time I teach an overview of C.S. Lewis, because I think it's his richest story in many ways, his deepest story. And it's also one of his more disturbing stories in some places. And so people who, people who know Lewis through the, the Chronicles of Narnia, and then they get to something like Till We Have Faces, there are places where they're going, wait a minute, he's interesting. When I teach, there's, there's another one that I would highly recommend, but it's the third book in a series. When I teach the Lewis class, I don't do the first two books in the series. I make them read the third book. That's called That Hideous Strength. And the series is called the Space Trilogy. The first one is Out of the Silent Planet, which is in many ways a response to H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, in which H.G. Wells basically says, if there are creatures on other planets, they are our enemy and they will attack us. And Lewis is like, no, wait a minute, maybe not. The second book, Paralandra, is the main character of the first book goes to Venus. It's a reworking of, I would say, the Adam and Eve story, which is true. 
but he's very much is relying on John Milton in the you know 1600s mm-hmm. wrote Paradise Lost. And he's really mm-hmm. reworking Paradise Lost. And he's asking the question, and he even has a character at one point in the character who's from Earth, who's now on Venus, actually out loud asks the question, wait a minute, if an elephant had stepped on a snake in Eden, does that mean everything would have been completely different? Which it's asking those <laughs> kinds of questions about, well, what is right and wrong, good and bad? Could our world have gone any different than the story that we get in the Bible? And if so... Why or why not? And what would it have looked like? It's a really interesting book. That's Paralandra. But the one that I, in that series that I make my students read in the C.S. Lewis class is called That Hideous Strength. It's the third book, and it happens here on Earth. And there's these creatures. Again, I don't want to give too much away, but they're angels in disguise. Well, they're just angels who, who are everywhere in space, not just here on Earth. And they come down to Earth instead of us going out, someone from Earth going out there. Mm-hmm. It's post-World War II is when he wrote it. So it's explore, It's really working with a lot of what happened and what people were concerned about in England after World War II when they had been, you know, food shortages and there was just so much of the country had to be rebuilt because they had, you know, London had been bombed and, other cities had just been pretty much wiped out in parts of England. I mean, places like Oxford weren't even touched. Um, but reworking some of the concerns about that mixes it in with the King Arthur story, mixes it in oh, with wow. it's just, it's a lot of different things he pulls in together to make the story that hideous strength. It asks a lot of the questions that dystopian stories ask, and it works with some of those ideas. So I would say those are the ones to go with for Tolkien and Lewis. If you've read a lot of Tolkien and Lewis, I would say you want to look at George MacDonald, who influenced both of them. He's a Victorian writer. Lewis, when he was an atheist, read a book by George MacDonald called Fantasties. And he later described it as this book baptized my imagination. Now, nowhere in the book does George MacDonald talk about God or heaven or hell. It's about a guy who goes into fairyland. He's, he turns 21. He inherits this house on his 21st birthday. He opens a desk and there's a fairy in it. And she says, I'm your grandmother. And that sounds very silly, but it really is a fascinating adventure. And it's wandering and it goes through different places and things in the places in the story where you're going. I'm not sure this is going anywhere. But it's actually about his personal development. He's on a quest, but he doesn't know he's on a quest because he's just wandering through fairyland. And the main character wanders, but each adventure he has, each experience he has, he is growing through those things. So I would highly recommend George MacDonald after Tolkien and Lewis or alongside of them. So I have plenty to read. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's awesome. Those are amazing recommendations. So thank you. Thank you. So how can people, you know, connect with you or maybe find out what classes that you're offering or if they want to dive deep into some of these things? And, and uh-huh. yeah. Excellent questions. People- so you can email me at the seminary. Um, do you want me to give, go ahead and give my email address? Yeah, sure. So and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Okay, great. It's mgreen at Urbana Theological Seminary. That is probably the easiest way to find me, and you can. I'd love to talk about this stuff. And the way to find out what my classes are are is you can check the seminary website www.urbanatheologicalseminary.org. 
I know our summer classes are not up yet. I know our fall classes are not up yet. But they're usually, when, when they're all ready to go, they're on the website, on the main page. And then you can also always contact me and say, hey, what are you teaching soon? I actually have a group of students who are of former students who have been lobbying me to teach a couple of different things coming up. So I'm not quite sure. I'm going to go back to the Chesterton class. G.K. Chesterton is someone I haven't mentioned who influenced Tolkien and Lewis. Like Lewis, he was an atheist and then became a Christian. But Chesterton was actually raised in a Victorian atheist family. It was the cool thing to do was be atheist. We're not giving our children any Bible stories or anything like that. And he converted to Christianity out of that, which is a fascinating. And he actually talks in a book called Orthodoxy. He has a whole chapter called Ethics of Elfland, where he talks about how fairy tales are what brought him to Christianity. And his parents wouldn't read him the Bible, but they read him fairy tales. And he got the same things out of the fairy tales that other people were getting out of reading Bible stories. So Chesterton will probably be coming up. Um, the Lewis class comes around every so often, the C.S. Lewis class every couple of years, the Tolkien class every couple of years. I just taught it in the fall, so it won't be for at least a year, probably a little longer than that. What I am teaching this coming fall is actually I don't know yet because I've got a couple people who've been like, please, please teach the Harry Potter class again. We'll see. (laughs) It's a mystery and you just have to keep checking the website to see what will actually be coming out. It's a mystery because I haven't solidified it yet either. Well, thank you. This has just been fascinating and my mind is racing because, again, I'm I'm a voracious reader and Mm -hmm. these are some things that 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 I just love and could sit and talk about. And I might even sign up for one of your classes. That'd be fabulous. Um, and maybe if it's a Harry Potter, I definitely would sign up for one. <laughs> um, <laughs> so for you, I asked this of all my guests, but for you, what's your favorite or most meaningful spiritual practice right now? Right now, I would have to say prayer. I know as a Christian, I should say reading my Bible, uh, but I would say <laughs> prayer right now, even more than reading Because you can be doing anything and pray about it. And you can be, it doesn't have to be something that like you sit down and here's my formal prayer. You can talk to God at any point. And for example, earlier, being honest with God, I think is one of the most interesting things about prayer. For example, earlier this year, something, a few things happened very close to each other that were huge and not good. And I just, I was like, tell God, I don't want this. Of course, there was nothing that was going to change that. But it's still there was that connection there that I think was an important thing to be able to say to God, I don't want this. Did I ask God to change it? No, because it wasn't going to change. But prayer is something that, you know, there's so many things. I mean, we think about prayer often in church as, as you know, you, you have this formal thing, someone says, you know, these things are how you pray. But really just telling God whatever, whenever, um, mm-hmm. I think it becomes really, really important. And it mm-hmm. pulls you closer to God. And sometimes it also helps you see things a little differently because you can even be praying and be like, okay, I know I shouldn't think this. So here's what I'm thinking. And, like, mm-hmm. and even that in and of itself can reflect your, you know, help you reflect. So you're talking to God, but he's also talking to you. Yeah. And if you're 
into reading books with imaginative settings. I think that also gives you some permissions to be able to have imaginative ways that God can respond back to you. Mm -hmm. So it's a self-perpetuating thing. So thank you so much. It's just been a delight talking with you and, and learning about all these things. And I could talk for hours about this. So thank you so very much. Yeah, I hope we can talk again. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah this definitely. It's been really lovely. Thank you so much for letting me do this. Wonderful. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Everything is Spiritual and taking time to nourish your soul. Tune in each week for a little community and a lot of conversation. Or subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. For more resources around spiritual exploration, restoration, and transformation, be sure to sign up on our mailing list at experiencesoulcare.com. Visit our website for information on retreats, workshops, and services from our partners. Or better yet, come visit our welcoming space in Urbana to say hi and get a steaming cup of tea. Soul Care Urban Retreat Center is a warm, welcoming, and accessible place for you to refresh, renew, and restore your mind, body, heart, and soul. We set a great big table and everyone is welcome. Until next week, be well.